Welcome to Convo this Monday morning. I'm Shar Hostetler and I'm the campus counselor and I'm pleased to highlight several out-of-the-classroom learning opportunities in the next two weeks. GSWA is sponsoring activities throughout this week focusing on healthy bodies. One of these activities is on Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. in Newcomer 17 where there'll be a discussion looking at questions like don't understand men, don't understand women, don't understand sexual orientation. What does the opposite gender want you to know? Sounds like some interesting questions. There will be the first half of the time um, will be separated into male and female bodied sessions and then there'll be time to come back together and discuss the questions. So hope you can take that in on Wednesday at 6 p.m. in Newcomer 17. We also have two convos before this spring focusing on cultivating healthy relationships. This morning, Keith Graber-Miller and Ruth Stolzfus will be speaking on intimacy and relationships. And then next Wednesday, February 18th, there will be a special convo with a guest speaker, Melody Fabian from Chicago, Illinois. She speaks to youth and young adults nationwide and internationally on the benefits of abstinence until marriage. I hope you can take these opportunities in. This morning, I have the privilege to introduce our speakers. Some of you may have had them as professors, or you may have had Ruth as your nurse practitioner in the Wellness and Health Center. Let me formally introduce them to you. Keith Graber-Miller is the chair of the Bible and Religion Department. He has taught at Goshen College since 1987, working primarily with theology, ethics, religious history, and sociology of religion. He completed his PhD in Ethics and Society at Emory University in 1994. He is the husband of Ann Graber-Miller and the father of Miles, Mia, and Simon. He speaks on sexuality issues in church-wide and congregational contexts. Ruth Stolzfus is currently a professor in the nursing department. She was a director of the Wellness and Health Center and served as nurse practitioner for the last eight years before she moved across campus to Wise Hall last summer. She loves learning and is currently working on her PhD at IUPUI. She is the wife of Eric, the mother of two grown daughters, and the grandmother of three beautiful ch grandchildren. Keith and Ruth have co-taught human sexuality out of the sociology department for the last nine years. Let's welcome them as they share their insights on intimacy in relationships. Today's convo is for anyone who's ever been in an intimate relationship, who is in one now, or who hopes to be in one someday. And we pretty much hope that that will cover almost all of you. As people who care very much about healthy and holistic friendships, we've had many opportunities to listen to your questions and your heartfelt stories about your relationships. It's been an honor and a gift to do so. We hear regularly about the pain, confusion, and misery of relationships in our offices and in our classrooms. We see the results of depression, sleepless nights, worry and anxiety, not being able to study or concentrate, body image and eating issues, issues of sexual assault and abuse, emotional and verbal abuse, and more. We know that many of us here carry profound sexual wounds wrought by abusive adults, dating partners, strangers, and in some cases even spouses, or by our own 
misguided choices, tender scars, even for those who are now survivors and thrivers. We know that many of us have been lured or coerced into exploitative sexual relationships by one more powerful or more charming or more manipulative. We also hear regularly about delightful, life-giving friendships and dating relationships, ones with balance and joy and care. This morning, we hope to encourage you as you think about developing intimate relationships in your life. In doing so, we'll be drawing on the work of Dr. Willard Crable, college physician emeritus who died January 6th after a long, courageous battle of can with cancer. Willard, who's the father of our own Merrill Crable, husband of Grace and brother of Anne and Anna Ruth, who are all here today with us, Willard founded the human sexuality class in 1974, back when it was exceedingly difficult to talk about sexuality on campus, back even before Mennonites had ever had sex. <laughs> it all started with Willard. His intention in starting the course which Ruth and I now co-teach, was to encourage students to see sexuality in the context of their whole lives and to enable them to discuss it more comfortably. Willard was the leading voice for church-related sexuality education over the last 30 years. And much of what is positive, at least about Mennonite discussions about sexuality today, is attributable in part to him. Willard was a pioneer in the areas of healthcare ethics, public health, family-centered childbirth, and sex education. While completing a master's degree in public health at Berkeley, Willard said he recognized the gap in his own education and in the Mennonite Church's educational program in the area of sexuality. He realized we can't talk about being whole persons and omit discussing sexuality his thought-provoking work on intimacy, which he developed in the Human Sexuality course, continues to resonate with our students and, we hope, with you today. Keith and I, other faculty and student life personnel, are always happy to talk with you about how to create happy, healthy, satisfying relationships and how to steer away from relationships that may be damaging or destructive. This is a campus that does not shy away from but discusses real-life issues with integrity in ways that challenge, affirm, and sustain our faith and help us to grow as whole, Christ-like people. This is only a part of what makes Goshen College unique. In the biblical text, Jesus rarely speaks to issues related to sex and sexuality. He says precious little about these issues, in fact, at least in comparison with what he has to say about various forms of, for instance, economic injustice. But behind what Jesus does say about sex and sexuality are the principles of respect and commitment and care. For Jesus, sexual relationships matter, in other words, and sexual relating is best within certain contexts, and it carries with it certain responsibilities. And while Jesus' primary uh, emphasis was not on narrowly defined sex and sexuality, he was committed to the formation of deep, meaningful and intimate relationships. Many of his stories, even ones that deal with money or with enemies or with the reign of God, have to do with developing relationships of trust and faithfulness. 
Jesus himself found it essential to surround himself with a group of friends whom we now call disciples. According to the biblical text, these relationships with men and with women were a fundamental part of who Jesus was. We all need and must have intimacy. Often we think of getting intimate as getting sexually intimate, but that's a rather truncated view cut off from reality. We really ought not speak about intimacy primarily in terms of sexual intimacy, since that corrupts and bastardizes the term. Sexual relating does not create intimacy. As Dr. Crable frequently said, what often passes for intimacy is nothing more than the mechanical stimulation of genital nerve endings. Now, not that within the appropriate context and relationships there's anything wrong with stimulating genital nerve endings. But what most of us really long for is intimacy rather than genital sex. No one has ever died from a lack of oral genital or genital-genital intercourse, but people do die from a lack of intimacy. People who live alone and say they have no friends have a mortality rate equal to that of people who smoke two to three packs of cigarettes a day. We do need other people. We do need other intimate relationships. Intimacy is the ability to experience an open, supportive, compassionate relationship with another person without fear of condemnation or loss of one's identity. It's knowing another person deeply and loving them anyway. Years ago, Dr. Crable developed what he called the intimacy wheel. If people want true intimacy, their relationships must include certain characteristics. Keith and I have much to say about various characteristics or ingredients from our respective disciplines and also from our lived experiences. First of all, friendship. Are we drawn to the person for who he or she is? Do we like him or her? Can we imagine spending hours with them just sitting around and talking, studying together in silence, or just hanging out. Secondly, a sense of acceptance. Do we accept the person for who he or she is as a person? We shouldn't try to change or manipulate friends to alter their style or personality. We know we are not on trial with an intimate friend. An intimate friend sends a clear message, an unconditional message. You're okay, worthwhile and valuable. Communication is a third ingredient in intimacy. Are we able to have open, honest communication with our friend? No deceit or no pretending, no lies, no hidden agenda. This is a word I never say in public. I, there are four letters that are Don't go there, the same please. as a... Well, Don't anyway. go there. <laughs> four letters that are the same as a female body part, and I always confuse the two terms, and so I usually strike it from my records. Um, no deceit or pretending, no lies, no hidden agenda. In learning to know a person, we should spend time exploring each other's interests, talking about the world, talking about our faith, talking about our growing up years, talking about what we enjoy doing with friends. It's not a myth that good communication is the heart of a good relationship. It's a fact. Some years ago, several social researchers teamed together at Indiana University to determine why relationships succeed or fail. And the results? That a lasting relationship results from the couple's ability to resolve the multitudes of conflicts that are inevitable in all relationships. 
Every relationship is going to have conflicts and disagreements, and each one should. That's important for it to have conflicts. If there are no conflicts, it likely means that one person is being tramped on by the other without recognizing it. It's how the conflict is handled that determines whether the relationship will be happy and successful. Partners must learn to engage in a disagreement instead of avoiding disagreements. Partners must learn to say what they need to say without minimizing their thoughts or emotions and without damaging the other. They need to learn to avoid shutting down, becoming defensive, or withdrawing. Disagreements can be handled by taking turns, truly listening to the other person's viewpoint. The goal is not necessarily to agree with the other's point of view, but to understand and to be understood. A majority of the time, simply understanding each other's point of view allows two people to move on from or through the conflict. Learning how to speak, to listen, and to settle disagreements without escalating the conflict are key ingredients to building a healthy, intimate relationship. It is natural when we have our first intimate relationships to not know how to communicate and manage conflict well. We're not born knowing how to have healthy, intimate relationships, especially if we've not experienced those in our family of origin. But with books and counselors available and a willingness to take some communication risks, we have plenty of opportunities to learn. Equality is another important ingredient in intimacy. Partners in a relationship have to value each other equally. Dominance by one person over the other destroys intimacy. That means no coercion, no power plays, no manipulation, no using another person for your own selfish purposes. We're increasingly convinced, Keith and I, that egalitarian relationships are not possible when one or both partners regularly consume pornography. One of the biggest cultural changes in the United States over the last 30 years has been the widespread increasing acceptance and accessibility of overtly demeaning sexual materials. And although it seems impossible to believe, in the United States, we now have more adult sex shops than McDonald's. Americans now spend around $13.3 billion a year on adult entertainment, more than we spend attending professional sporting events, more than we spend on the traditional film and music industries combined. Now, with more than 100 million people in the U.S. hooked up to the Internet, Internet porn is booming. 12% of all websites are pornographic. A full quarter of all searches are for pornographic material. The easy access, affordability, and anonymity of Internet porn have drawn many people, including many students on this campus, into its web. What's wrong about pornography is not that it shows naked bodies. Some of the best art depicts bodies in the buff. But that sexuality, it depicts as too exploitive, too casual, too meaningless, too often violent and degrading, and too pervasively about unequal power relationships between men and women. We know, too, that porn persistently makes its viewers who seek to model their own sexual lives after what they observe, it makes its viewers feel sexually inadequate in their God-given genital allotments, negatively assess the bodies of their partners, and create unrealistic expectations about the dynamism of their sexual encounters. 
We also know that the regular consumption of porn makes viewers more likely to accept the rape myth, that even when women say no, they really mean yes. Through our interaction with students and our awareness of the literature on pornography, we've come to believe the possibility of healthy intimacy is seriously damaged when one or both partners consume porn regularly. Porn reduces, chips away at our sexual wholeness. The fifth ingredient in, the, in healthy intimacy is trust. There are enormous mo emotional risks in making yourself vulnerable to another, and many of us know the pain of betrayal or loss. Often we're unwilling to open ourselves to another person for fear of being hurt. To a certain extent, there's some wisdom in not exposing ourselves fully to people at first blush. We should go slowly, not dumping all of our past personal and relational garbage um, at, in the first several dates. This creates a sense of false intimacy. Trust takes time to build, and we'll get to that in a little bit. And we have to know that trust will be reciprocated. So if you're hesitant to know what to share, think about a scale from 1 to 50, with 1 being semi-superficial stuff and 50 being the most, just about everything you could possibly say about yourself. Begin then by sharing at a level of 1 to 10 the first few conversations and see if what you say is listened to, see if you feel respected, see if your partner reciprocates your sharing. If these things happen reciprocally and mutually, this can be your cue to begin sharing more, and that will result in a growing trust. Taking some emotional risks sometimes is worth it. In any event, dependability, loyalty, and honesty all build the trust that we need before we're willing to share our deepest feelings. Sixthly, intimacy is most possible between people who have shared values, who have the same lifestyle and life goals. A shared ethic, a shared religious faith, overlapping communities that we belong to, all of these help create and sustain intimacy. For those of us who are Christian, that means a shared faith in Christ and a willingness to keep Christ at the center of our relationship. Affection is yet another ingredient of intimacy. Do you feel affection for the person? Does your face light up when his or her name is mentioned? Do you really care when they are hurting? Be aware that if you've been dating for a significant period of time, say perhaps a year, you probably won't feel those goosebumps for your partner when someone mentions his or her name. But affection in a healthy, balanced relationship will deepen in other ways, like mutual concern and mutual care for each other. The eighth ingredient, according to Willard, is an ability to touch in affirming, not exploiting ways. It's normal in the first phase of a dating relationship for a very high level of physical and sexual attraction to be present. That's possible even after being married 20 years. Yeah, Keith, and even after 30 years. <clears throat> it's normal for the physical and sexual attraction which is at its peak during the first year, which is often called the honeymoon phase, to decrease in its intensity as the relationship grows. In a healthy relationship, Physical intimacy is shared equally with the other areas of intimacy that have been growing simultaneously during the relationship. In a marriage that's beyond the honeymoon phase, touch may not be as intense or electric, but touch becomes safer, more secure, more known, and the freedom that develops within this committed relationship has the ability to enhance the physical and sexual relationship. In terms of intimate touch, 
if the touching makes us feel important and not used, then that's affirming touch. Intimate touching makes us feel better, not guilty. True intimacy means being with another person in a way that's closer than the contact of two bodies. As we've already suggested, sexual relating does not create intimacy. In some relationships, when all of the other components are already present, it may energize and cap a relationship. But it certainly doesn't create intimacy in relationships where intimacy is not already present. Sexual intercourse is often used by people to shield themselves from the vulnerability of true intimacy, or in the case of sexual promiscuity, people may be searching desperately for authentic intimacy. Time is also an essential ingredient in intimacy. Intimacy is a process, and there's no easy, instant way to achieve it, despite what the soap operas, uh, the songs, and films might tell us. True intimacy cannot be fallen into or out of in rapid succession. Beware of thinking that you have attained true intimacy if you're in your first year of a dating relationship. It's worth saying a word here about hooking up, a term most of you are probably familiar with. Hookups are one-time sexual encounters, anything from kissing to sexual intercourse. They're not about intimacy and are destructive to healthy sexuality. Four out of five men and women in a poll at James Madison University said they had hooked up, a process they said routinely involved petting below the waist, oral sex, and intercourse. Most university students who have engaged in hookups say they accumulate an average of 11 hookup partners in their college careers. And most of these hookups occur after the participants have consumed alcohol, a point we'll return to in a moment. Some students defend their hookups by noting that they always practice safe sex in these encounters. That's perhaps one of the most misleading misnomers of the postmodern period. Safe sex does nothing to prevent partners or protect partners from the boredom of mechanical sex, from the hurt, betrayal, and jealousy that frequently accompany promiscuity, or from the grief and depression that accompany a broken heart. There's no condom for that. There's no prophylactic strong enough to contain that kind of brokenness. The point here is simply to say that intimacy takes time. It's not something that happens overnight. Finally, commitment is essential for genuine intimacy. True intimacy requires the kind of loving commitment that keeps us present for and involved with the friend or partner and keeps us caring and loving over time. In light of this understanding of intimacy, it's clear that we can have intimate friendships with both men and with women. Many non-genital friendships are far more intimate than many marriages. That means single, celibate people can have intimate relationships as well as anyone else. It's also clear that we cannot truly be intimate with a large number of people at the same time. We simply don't have enough hours in the day. But together, these 10 ingredients allow for a healthy kind of intimacy. This is the sort of intimacy that we really yearn for in our lives. Given that, we want to say just a few words yet just about choices, our bodies, and sexual assault. Women, it's important for us to learn to combat societal messages about our bodies. Even though you may not always feel it, your body is your own. You have control over your own body. 
and you have the right to decide who can touch it, where, and when. Men and women. Our culture has also given us the message of sexual freedom. And I think what happens is we have wrongly combined these messages and we may think that experimenting with sexual pleasure with a partner is helping us to gain back the power in our bodies and in our sexuality. Please don't buy into this myth. One of my students in my religion and sexuality class several years ago wrote in her journal, which I quote with her permission, after doing all the reading on gender power imbalances in male-female relationships, and after my quickness to focus on the idea that mutuality and caring commitment are among the most important relational factors, I had one of the more surprising realizations. Almost all of my relating with men, she said, has followed the pattern of male dominance in one form or another, mostly by the male having more control over the initiation of physical contact, by relationships generally staying within the male's turf, interests, world in general, and also by the forms of relating themselves being very typically male-defined. It's quite a blow to my self-image to have to honestly include myself among the women who more often compromise than hold out or stand up for a new understanding and experience of relationships. It takes a lot of wholeness of character and integrity and a very strong sense of self-worth in order to buck the manners of relating we've been taught in order to create a new one. Let's add alcohol to the mix. What happens in scenarios where alcohol is involved or hooking up is practiced is destructive to our idea of sexual freedom and healthy relationships. The consequences of the party scene where there is sexual exploration and one-night encounters are more complex than just creating a pattern of unhealthy relating. Many choices that are made in the heat of the moment unfortunately do have life-altering consequences, and these include pregnancy, sexually transmitted infections and diseases, unplanned and unwanted sexual activity, including rape and sexual assault. As you know, the great majority of sexual assaults involve men assaulting women. Tragically, many women who are assaulted and the men who commit the assaults are not aware that it was sexual assault. Sexual assault is any unwanted sexual contact or sexual attention committed by force, threats, bribes, manipulation, pressure, or violence. It includes rape and attempted rape. It is a crime. It is punishable by prison. In one study of sexual assault on college campuses, 84% of the men who met the legal definition for rape said they believed while it was happening that what they did was definitely not rape. Most of the sexual assaults happened off campus, and most of the men had been using alcohol or drugs beforehand. In this study, about 75% of the women said they tried to reason verbally or struggle physically with their assailant, but only 30% of the men thought that the women were vis verbally resisting, and only 12% of the men recognized that the victim had struggled physically. The study concluded that part of the reason for the disparities here was that the men did not perceive the situations as forceful, but the women did. They found them quite threatening, and that the male's inclination was to interpret the female's response as being less serious than it was. This is all quite sobering, quite powerful. Based on that, let's all get on the same page. Trust that no always means no. It's never permissible to force yourself on a partner even if you believe he or she is leading you on. Recognize that you take responsibility for your own body, both of you. 
If you're not absolutely certain that physical touching or activity is mutually agreed upon, wait. If you have sex without your partner's consent, you're committing a crime, even if you've had sex with that person previously. A person who is engaged sexually with others is not asking to engage sexually with you. You could be committing criminal sexual assault if you have sex with a person who's intoxicated, under the influence of drugs, or unconscious. If you realize that you have ever experienced sexual assault or have been a perpetrator of assault, talk with someone about this. If you're dealing with um, sadness or shame from going farther than you intended in a relationship, talk with someone about this. We're aware that for some of you, it's painful to hear these things today. We hope you will find someone you can trust to talk with. Shar Hosteller, our campus counselor, Bob Yoder and Tamara Schantz, our campus pastors, are some of the professionals on this campus that you can talk with confidentially about this. It's really important that you find someone experienced in this issue that you trust to talk to. Relationships are a complex subject. We've intentionally left out much that we could and would like to say. Our intent here today has been to challenge you to think through some of the tough decisions you face regarding intimate relationships. It's our hope that by talking about the stages of dating and intimacy that lead to healthy relationships and exploring confusing and painful areas of our physical and sexual intimacy, you'll be able to make more informed choices and you'll continue to talk with us and others about these tough areas. You're doing so many things well already and we're marvelously impressed by the high level of respect and communication in, in intimate relationships here on campus. We challenge all of you to respect your bodies and your spirits, to make conscious choices about the ways in which you will relate with others and seek the true intimacy that is life, not life-taking, but is life-giving. As Paul said to the Church at Rome, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters at Goshen College, by the mercies of God, to present your good sexual bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen and amen.